there are a few things in my office that mean a lot to me. For example, I have three communion cups, each dated. That's how important communion is to me. This one was done in June of 2007 with a class that we all shared and had communion together. The other two are both from our trip to Zimbabwe. I have a name tag for a desk. It's obviously not mine because it says Reverend. <laughs> Reverend C.A. Latimer. It sat on my dad's desk. <coughs> I have a cup, which I didn't want to take them out, Rich, because I wasn't sure that they might not get, but inside are, are Bronco letters that you gave me <laughs> that I haven't figured out where I'm going to put yet. But anyway, I have a cup that says Colonel C.A. Latimer. And even though I am also a Kentucky Colonel, this cup wasn't mine either until it was given to me by my mother uh, because it was my father's. Things I treasure. This one might strike you odd. But a couple clay pigeons. But these two clay pigeons bear the message on the inside from the skeet range of, I'm sorry, Jesse, some of you, you're not going to remember. From the skeet range of radio and TV entertainer Arthur Godfrey. <laughs> Treasures. Treasures to me that most of them wouldn't be a treasure to you at all. I did see a, an interesting smile and look from Willie when I got the Arthur Godfrey skeets up. And my wife has permission if I should pass and you're still, she's still in the area, you are to pass those on to you if she would like. <laughs> I know Arthur Godfrey through a country song. <laughs> Everyone has treasures. People who know me know that I have several books in my library that are treasures to me. Some are very old. They're in fact leather bound, printed in the 1800s. Some of them signed by authors who are no longer living. For example, one of the books that I've been sharing with you that I've actually got a rubber band around it to hold it together because it's been falling apart uh, is the book that was done as an honor to my mentor titled The Preacher's Teacher, The Meaning and the Message of the Sermon on the Mount. And it contains the words inside the front cover May God continue to bless your service for him, Doc Marion Henderson. Words in the handwriting of my coach, baseball coach, my mentor, and my spiritual father, 
and you will never convince me it's not his handwriting because it's left-handed. Our text today will begin, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Here's what it looks like. May the Zorzete lean the Zoros Epitaxis. Now, if you just look at it, not knowing anything about the Greek language, you can see that there are two words that are built off of the same base. The, first, the second word there and the first word on the second line. The first is a verb. The second is a noun form of the same word. And, focusing on the second word for a second, theta, T-H-E-S-A-U-R-U-S. Our English word, thesaurus. Words are also a treasure of mine. So I use my thesaurus often, my treasury of words. In our text today, Jesus forces us to do some uncomfortable wrestling with the issue of our financial treasures. And and let me say this. To Jesus, it's not a matter of just money. Once again, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of physical possessions as much as it is pointing to our spiritual priorities. It's not a matter concerning this life, but an important concern, not just this life, but an important concern for eternal life. One of the great devotional classics is a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life by a man named William Law. In it, he writes this, If you would be a good Christian, there is but one way you must live, holy unto God. Notice, not H-O-L-Y, but completely holy unto God. And if you would live holy unto God, if you would do that, then you must act according to right judgments of the nature and value of things. You must live in the exercise of holy and heavenly affections and use all the gifts of God to His praise and glory. In other words, use all of your treasures as heavenly treasures, not for earthly purposes. The lifestyle, this worth, worldliness, which we get caught up in, and which the Bible says for us to avoid, can take either a religious or a secular shape. And so Jesus' em- emphasis here is that as Christians, we are to differ from non-Christians, not only in our devotions, but also in our ambitions, in particular in our attitude toward material wealth and possessions. Here's our text for today. Do not lay up treasures 
on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. May God add His blessing to our reading of this word. Most agree that the controlling thought of this passage is found in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. But what's that mean? What's that mean? Jonathan Pennington, my new friend, says the principle stated most clearly and practically is that one's relationship to money is not a neutral matter, but affects and reflects the inner person. Let's bring it home. In many homes, a Christmas tree comes with wonderful Christmas memories. It's a collection of sentiments from many different family members. Our tree is made up of many ornaments, new and old, glass and plastic. Some are even handmade, bearing memories, precious memories. You know I'm a crybaby. I cried last year when one of the dogs got one of the ornaments that was a handmade ornament that also had a picture of one of the children when they were a baby on it. You see, Christmas is a time of tradition and treasures. Traditions that remind us of special times, such as the hanging of ornaments on the tree. Treasures that are the people and some of the gifts we've received, as well as the fond memories we have made and continue to make as as we gather with family and friends. But what if we allowed the gifts, the things, to become more important than the giver? I hope you realize by now that the greatest of all gifts ever given, a a gift given out of true love, was the baby in the manger. The Apostle John wrote, For God so loved the world. Yes, I disagree with red letter editions that have this as words from Jesus. John wrote as a summary statement about the story that preceded it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus never refers to himself as the son other than the son of man. This is John writing telling us about what God did in Jesus. The greatest gift ever given was most likely wrapped, as we heard from Cindy, in his earthly father's burial cloth. Because when they traveled, they would take that and they would wrap it around their waist so that if something happened, it would be there readily accessible. 
and he was placed, as we also heard, in a rustic feeding trough, not a cradle. And as we start digging into our text, we need to hear the words of John Stott. He points out that in our translations, do not lay up or do not store could have easily and literally been translated, don't have this habit. It's a command. It's in, it's in the imperative. And there's this play on words. Don't treasure, treasure not for yourselves treasures. In fact, there's another Christmas story with which most of us are very familiar. Matthew 2, verses 9 to 12. And the same Greek word is used in verse 11 for treasure. It's talking about the Magi, the wise men. It says, And so they came and they found the child in a house. That's why they shouldn't be here. It was almost two years later. They weren't in the manger anymore. They were in a house when the wise men got there. If anything, what should be here is a red dragon up here, according to Revelation waiting for the child to be born so he could devour it. They came, found him in a house with his mother Mary. And by the way, it's always in that order. Here in verse 13, 14, 20, and 21, it's always Jesus first and his mother Mary, which wasn't customary to say it that way in that day. And it says, and they gave him their offerings. They opened their treasures to give him their gifts. Because you know what? The word for treasures is also used as a word for caskets. Carsophagus. A place to store something. They opened those and gave him the gifts. Gold, a gift fit for a king. And the king in baby clothes was there. Frankincense. Constant use by the priests in the temple. And the ultimate priest, the one who was to make final reconciliation with God and humankind, lay before them. And myrrh, Jesse was telling me about a podcast, right, that you watch or a post where somebody said, yeah, go frankincense and myrrh and, and myrrh, I think I'm pronouncing it right, myrrh, but I have no idea what it is. So Jesse promised me she would contact her and fill her in now. Uh, but myrrh was something that was used to embalm the dead. Is that a kind of a gift you would expect to give, be, to receive, I mean, for your newborn baby? <clears throat> but significant treasures... And in those treasures, we see who Jesus is and what He came to do and what it cost Him. 
And like the wise men, we bow in wonder before a God who can love us that much. And so in our text today, we see that there are two treasures. And the obvious question Jesus is placing before us is, where's your heart? What has your heart? Back to the Christmas story. In Luke's account, as the shepherds find the baby in the most unusual circumstances in that feeding trough, wrapped in burial cloths, we're told that the first thing they did was make known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And their reaction was one of wonder. And Mary, we're told, (coughs) excuse me, same word again, treasured, treasured up all these, I got one, Jesse. Treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Isn't it interesting how that same word See why I like words? That same word keeps coming back. The treasure that needed to be treasured was the proclamation that as Savior, (coughs) Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, had been born. This is what I've been saying for a while now. The most significant thing that we need to be focusing on is that Jesus is our King. Our King. And the wise men opened up treasures to present gifts. And in our text for today, Jesus is also specific about the sorts of things that grab our spending power. He warns against giving priorities to such items as clothes that will wear out, precious metals that can spoil, treasures that can be stolen. See, Jesus is not condemning wealth any more than he is condemning clothes, things, and possessions. He's simply prohibiting loving those things. Okay, come on, parents. We were there, so I know you were too. You get that special gift that your child kept saying they wanted. When they were real young. Maybe it was a big gift. And they open up the gift. And before long, the gift is sitting there. And what are they doing? They're playing with the box or the wrapping paper. You see, just like the Magi, the wise men, the wise people, the true children of the kingdom will put their treasure where they cannot lose it, where it will never wear out, where it will never be eroded. Which brings us to the metaphor that Jesus uses involving the eye and the lamp. Since the eye is the only means of vision our body has, it's an application involving two visions. With the resulting question, where's your focus? You see, without an eye, we cannot see light. 
In fact, ancient thought generally supposed that the human eye was quite literally a source of light. It would send out light and then the light would return. They weren't far from wrong. They just didn't understand that the sun sets out that light and that light reflects to us. But sight was understood to be a function by means of a flow of light from the eyes to the object and then back to the eyes. I learned from experience that something that blocks our vision like a cataract one of the very first things it does is diminish the light they did that first eye I didn't get both of them done the same day they did the first eye and already by the time that it was over before I had left on my first visit back the doctor said are you still wanting the second eye done because they did the worst one first I said, absolutely. If things improve as much as they did with this one, because I could see much better in darkness. And when they did the second one, even though they didn't put in prescription lenses, I didn't hardly need my glasses. I'm okay this way. I can read this. I just need this to make Ray and Beverly not look a little bit blurry back there. Before that, I couldn't hardly see. And when Jesus says, if then, he's bringing out the consequences of all of this. Granted that the entrance of light is so important then, there is a disaster if the light within anyone is in fact darkness. And the climax of the saying is concerned with the spiritual rather than the physical meaning. The light that is in you is surely not the light that strikes the eye. We might call it the brightness of goodness within, but Jesus is talking about the enlightenment that comes to the person who lives close to God. When, the light, and when that light is darkness, there's disaster. And so the question becomes... What are you focusing on? What are you allowing to illuminate the world? I never, I never interpret this book by the world. Even when it comes to scientific matters. I interpret what I am told from science and history by what this book says. This is what illuminates things for me. So the third and final choice that we have is between two masters. And the question is, is who is your Lord? You see, the service of, or for, or to God has to be wholehearted. That's the thrust of the teaching about light and darkness. It's to be one or the other, not both. And this is further brought out, <coughs> excuse me, with a forthright statement that it's impossible to give one's first allegiance to God and at the same time 
to money. No one can belong completely to two owners. Now, it's true, interestingly, that in the ancient world, it is known that there were slaves who were owned by two masters. They shared ownership. But you know how they did it? Kind of like uh, custody decisions. Okay, you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday till noon. You have Wednesday afternoon through Sunday or something to that effect. It wasn't that they tried to have them at the same time. That doesn't work. And that's a relationship that we need to understand it can't exist in duplicate. To belong wholly to one owner means that all other owners are ruled out. So the climax of this saying is that it's impossible to be simultaneously a slave of God and money. And the word used there for cannot is a strong term. It indicates a sheer impossibility. And actually, slave is also another strong term, pointing to complete devotion. We have to decide who is going to be our Lord, the baby in the manger or the gold in the casket. The presence around a tree or the Lord who died on a cross referred to as a tree. Have we allowed the commercialism to draw us away from the true reason for the season? You see, the stark alternatives make it clear that the service of God is no part-time affair, but something that calls for our fullest devotion. And since money tends to draw people away from God, Jesus warns pretty sternly about it. I've asked some young people that I know that have taken jobs. And they were told it's going to mean you're going to have to work on Sunday. And, and they've said, but I'm going to make more money. And I've asked them, do you think in the long run it's really going to be worth it? You see, the treasure that Mary treasured in her heart, the treasure that needed to be treasured, was that proclamation that as Savior, Jesus is Christ the Lord, and He has been born. And that brings me to my challenge. We need to hear the call to exclusive devotion. Because the essence of salvation is single ownership and full-time service. That's what upset Herod. <clears throat> Enough to kill all babies up to the age of two. Because he knew that if there was another king born, a King Jesus, it would demand their exclusive devotion, taking away their devotion from him and to him. He knew that if they took seriously their loyalty and service to King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, it would take away from what they might do for His kingdom. And it was obvious He didn't want to worship the baby Jesus. 
And here's what breaks my heart. I'm not sure that it's any more evident in the lives of many people today who profess to be Christians. Because I don't see in the way they are living that the baby in the manger is the greatest treasure. Let's pray. Father, help us to get our priorities straightened out. Help us to realize that you didn't come just to save us. That there is no understanding of Savior in the Scripture without equally Lord. You can't be our Savior without us allowing you to be our Lord. Help us to know that. Help us to get a proper understanding of what the treasure was. Not gold to help them travel. Not myrrh to embalm the body. But the proclamation that the baby is the anointed one the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.